to Discount Gold and Silver Trading uh, Financial Survival. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and I'm pleased to welcome back to the program after uh, a little of a holiday, James Corbett. And as you know, James, I'm going to remind you, is the founder and editor of the Corbett Report, which was founded in 2007. In 2012, he became the editorial writer for the International Forecaster, which, of course, was created by our good friend Bob Chapman. And you can visit James's website at thecorbettreport.com, thecorbettreport.com. And also, you can request a complimentary copy of the International Forecaster just by going to their website, theinternationalforecaster.com. Well, welcome back, James. Hello. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. And uh, so we got lots of catching up to do. And you you took a little bit of a holiday and you went to Vietnam. And you wrote a recent article on the Corbett Report. And we have lots of things to talk about. But since uh, uh, you've been on holiday, uh, your article is Law and Disorder, Even Tyranny Has Cracks. I don't know if it was inspired by your recent trip to Vietnam. Uh, the country is still a communist state. And in your article, you point out that it's not a typical military boots on the ground dictatorship. Um, could you go on to describe how tyrannies like Vietnam operate? You know, in Yes. Yes, I can. Um, in fact, this was inspired by uh, a thought that uh, was passed along by Brock West, who some people might know is my video editor for CorbettReport.com. And he lives in Vietnam now. He's Australian, but he's been living in Vietnam for over a year now. So I finally took him up, uh, took him up on his offer and brought the family over to meet him and see, the, uh, see a little bit of Vietnam. It was very nice to see another part of the, the globe. And one of the things that we talked about that he mentioned in passing while he was there is that, you know, there are, of course, there's lots of rules and laws and things that you're not supposed to do. But, but you know, as long as you're not causing trouble, generally, there's not going to be too much of a police presence in your life. And that was an interesting statement because it corresponds to what I've found in a lot of different places that I've traveled to and lived in over the years, which is that, yeah, generally speaking, there of course, there are a million different laws and rules and regulations and prohibitions wherever you go. But you get to know over time, well, some of them are eh, more suggestions than they are real rules, and they're not really enforced and, and things like that. And we can all think of those types of things from our daily experience wherever we live. And that's one of the points of this article. I'm not talking about Vietnam specifically. I'm talking about any tyranny anywhere, because anytime some government uh, claims to rule over you, I think that's some form of tyranny. But uh, my point is that even such a trivial thing as, oh, you know, I, I broke the speed limit to today, there's still a sense in which we all know, well, yes, that is a law, and you can and sometimes do get uh, pulled over and ridden a fine or whatever it is for your infraction. But generally speaking, you know, you can get away with going a few miles an hour over the speed limit kind of thing. It's it's that mentality, which is, I think, an important part to understand about the way that tyranny, or should I say government, I repeat myself, function. It, 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 it creates this entire web of laws and rules and regulations and prohibitions that is so broad and so completely woven that all of us are enmeshed in it. And the old, the old adage, I'm not sure 
you know, to to what extent this is literally true, but the, the old adage is that the average American cr- commits three felonies a day without knowing it, because there are so many book laws on the books that no one could even possibly keep up with them all, let alone understand them all, and some of them are just ridiculous. Um, there's laws against putting lobsters in plastic bags in in certain states and, and things like this that, that, again, people wouldn't even know they're committing a crime. And the point is, yes, this legal system has been created so that if and when the state really wants to crack down on you, they will have a million different excuses to do so, um, from the trivial to the uh, to the not-so-trivial. But uh, a lot of these rules that we all think, oh, you know, we're getting away with something, or we're kind of breaking a rule, or no one really follows that rule. Well, those rules are there for a reason, and generally it is so that the tyrant can assert his or her authority when they need to. And that's, I think that's the point. And it's, it's something to keep in mind because, again, our image of tyranny, whether communist state or, or otherwise, is that it is that boots on the ground and everything is surveilled and rigorously enforced at all times. No, there are always cracks in every system and they are deliberately left there. Not only so that people feel like they're getting away with something, but they can be woven in that net at any time, but also because the deep state needs its own little back back uh, back doors and loopholes in the system so that they can do their whatever it is uh, black money black mar- market money laundering or drug dealing or the all the things we know that the deep state is involved in behind the scenes well they need their agents to be involved in that as well so there are those types of cracks in the system as well and in a way this is a kind of a double-edged sword in one way it's a good thing because it means that there is space and flexibility even in the seemingly harshest of dictatorships. It also means, uh, on on the flip side of that, that uh, if and when the technological surveillance state comes in, into play and we are constantly monitored and analyzed in real time and assigned a score, uh, that makes that, uh, that leeway that we've enjoyed hitherto uh, just that l- much less slack. So we're going to be feeling the, the noose around the neck a little bit more tightly as the technological police state comes into view you know you talked about the way we're being um um watched china they just uh, and i don't think this is the first one but they have made a music video prom- promoting the importance of integrity and trustworthiness uh this is supposed to uh be this uh, video was released prior to rolling out the their social credit system next year and the system is designed to value and engineer better individual behavior and they assign scores to their billion citizens and in order to award the trustworthy and punish the disobedient and you know so it's going to prevent those who are disobedient you're not going to be able to travel you won't be able to you know board trains you won't be able to book hotels i mean these these are just some of the uh, uh penalties uh, from the citizens that are deemed untrustworthy. But the amount of population that we have, is this going to come to a city near <laughs> you, us, Yes, me? yes. In a sense, it already is. It already has. It's just not in, in the same, it doesn't look and feel the same as it does in China right now. And yes, for people who haven't checked out that uh, music video yet, I suggest they try to stomach it for at least a... Uh, you know, 30 seconds or a minute or so. Uh, You get the idea after that point. But yes, it is one of these creepy ways of trying to make everything seem glittery and poppy by putting some, you know, pop music over this 
exhortation for people to follow the rules and be trustworthy. Oh, yes, well, we should be trustworthy, but do we really want to enforce that with a social credit score? Of course not, but uh, as or you know, as, as creepy and Orwellian as that might seem to our perspective, most people in their everyday lives in the West will happily uh, accept the fact that now Facebook is censoring people's political opinions and Twitter is telling people what they can or cannot say about even such things as human biology when it comes to touchy subjects like transgenderism and what have you. Uh, these types of things are now being essentially... Uh, certain thoughts and certain ideas are being restricted from uh, public comment at this point. And this is, of course, the catch-22 because uh, people will say, oh, well, then what we need is we need the government to come in and regulate the, the big tech companies so that we can make it so that they all play fair and nicely, which I think is the worst type of utopian thinking because it's not even the right type of thinking. Um, I just recently elaborated on this in a video that uh, is still on the front page of CorporateReport.com as we speak, um, which is about big tech basically wanting to be regulated now. And Mark Zuckerberg came out and said as much uh, in the last couple of weeks. He, he said that he's looking for a government to come in and regulate political speech on, inter on social media platforms so that Facebook knows, you know, the rules and what, what to do and everything. And why do, why do you think they are desiring this type of regulation? It's precisely because the types of laws and regulations that come in to try to keep the social media space contained are the types of basically hoops that large companies will be able to jump through because they have lawyers and accountants and compliance officers and teams of engineers that can do whatever they need to do, upload filters and what have you. But any competition to these big tech giants will be weeded out because they will not be able to live up to that compliance structure. And that's exactly why the big companies, of course, they, they desire regulation because they are the ones generally who are writing that regulation behind the scenes. And if people want historical examples of exactly that phenomenon, they can go back to uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which I'm sure a lot of Americans probably read in their high school classes and probably forget, but it was a turn of the century, turn of the 20th century novel about the meatpacking industry and the horrific abuses that were going on in that industry at that time in the Chicago stockyards and what have you. And uh, it was basically kind of like a muckraking journalism, but in a fictional novel context, but it was clearly taken uh, up as a cause by the public. And the outcry was so large that the government came in and said, okay, we're going to regulate the meatpackers to make sure that no none of this kind of shenanigans happens again. And so what did they do? Of course, they create what ultimately ended up becoming the FDA and this regulatory compliance structure for the meatpackers to follow and inspections and what have you, which only the very largest of the meatpackers could possibly live up to. They were the only ones that were able to comply with all the regulations and, and things that were coming in. And thus, the meatpacking industry became even further consolidated than it was when Upton Sinclair was writing about it, which was, of course, exactly what the big meatpackers wanted. So they were the ones actually desiring the regulations because, again, they knew it was going to work to their benefit. I think in the exact same way, big tech is desiring regulation because they know it's going to cement their monopolies. Uh, it's getting harder and harder for a would-be YouTube competitor upstart to start out these days precisely because YouTube is able to do all of these things that the government is, is going to ask it to do um, that the upstart is not going to be able to do. And that's, I think that's the point of all of this. Well, since all these uh, tech programs and so forth, you know, the Zuckerberg wants it regulated, but um, I mean, aren't these global 
who, which country and what government would do the regulating. Yeah, that's a very good point and one that isn't brought up enough because uh, uh, some of this is revolving around the new laws that have been passed uh, by the EU parliament, which is now going to have to be enacted in each of the different states. They're going to have to write laws that are more specific than the vague kind of generalities that the EU has just passed. But they they pertain to uh, copyright compliance and things on the internet. But one of the one of the clauses that is generating a lot of interest is one that requires that will require platforms, social media platforms like YouTube, to check uh, to they will be held liable for copyrighted material if it is uploaded to their platform. Now that's a change because at this point, if there is some sort of copyrighted material or what have you uploaded to a platform like YouTube, then. You once that uh, that situation is brought to the attention of the platform, then they have some sort of legal responsibility to comply, to take it down, or to to in- initiate a copyright process or what have you. But at this point, they're going to say no. Anything that is uploaded is your responsibility, the platform's responsibility. So uh, people are looking at that and saying, well, now all of these whatever they are, film criticism channels or parody channels or all these things that make use of copyrighted material but in a fair use way are not going to be able to do anything. Even music tutorials like how to play this song kind of thing will not be able to function because... Uh, there's going to be upload filters put in place to make sure that nothing copyrightable uh, is or copyrighted is put on the platform. And in order to do that, it's basically just going to screen out all of the stuff. It's not going to consider fair use um, because at this point, YouTube, I know, actually generally doesn't consider fair use. It, it's, uh, it doesn't really comply to those laws. So the point is the EU is instituting these laws that's going to change and shape the social media space in general. And it's not like they're going to create a different YouTube or a different Facebook or a different Twitter for Europe. It's all going to be the same. They're just going to it's, – it's the race to the bottom. Whichever countries or country brings in the most draconian legislation is probably going to be the one to influence the social media huh. space this way or that way. And that's, that's pretty disturbing because, again, it means it is a race to the bottom in terms of uh, who can create the most draconian clampdown on the internet. Well, we're basically going to have to comply with that. That, 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 that is kind of – I mean it brings in a whole bunch of questions is because now you have a company that's basically being globally managed. Yeah. I mean it yeah, just yeah, kind of yeah. brings – No, it's, yeah, it's a good it, point it because – Yeah, it brings in this global one world order. Of course, type. exactly because yeah, essentially yeah. that is what the internet is about. The internet is not yeah, a national exactly. entity. It is international and right. it is bringing these issues to the fore because now we have to wonder. It's always been that kind of question in cyberspace. Well, what 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 jurisdiction are we in if I post something to YouTube? I'm in Canadian in Japan. They're in California. You know, maybe it's a video I record in Vietnam, I don't know, like, oh, you know, what, what, are the, what are the logistics here? Who, what jurisdiction would be involved? Well, generally, these social media platforms and the other sites and, and things that you upload to will have some sort of thing in their legalese spiel that no one reads about, you know, we will settle things in this or that jurisdiction. But, uh, but yeah, it does, it does kind of raise all of these issues when we're talking about these international subjects. And then when you're talking about regulation and compliance, yeah, now we're talking about this completely new set of affairs that, that didn't really 
exist pre-internet in terms of this complicated structure that the average person is in their day-to-day life is going to be interacting with entities that are potentially all the way across the globe and all in all sorts of different places and going to be interacting with people across borders in one ways in one way this is a beautiful thing this is humanity decentralizing and and interacting with each other freely but no freely that's the part that the powers that shouldn't be don't like and that's why they're going to create various legal structures to get around this. And of course, it's going to have to be some sort of international thing because it's an international phenomenon that's taking place here. So we'll just have to bring in some sort of one world regulatory compliance for the internet structure. And and on top of that, you know, maybe we can get a one world tax and we can start getting in all the other other one world things. So it's a backdoor to globalism. And uh, we're starting to see that play out as you as you very rightly point out here. But, you know, I always said, everybody says, oh, Y2K didn't happen, and I, yes, it did. I believe Y2K was all about wiring of the world together, and it just seemed, because everything has exploded after that. Uh, so many people got new computers and businesses and so forth. I mean, it was, you know, not that, you know, the world came to an end and the power went off and things like that, but if you really look and see what businesses and and everyone did we were wired together and again that was a starting point of here we are today but well on on the bright side i could just add that the y2k that was supposed to happen here in japan as we switched to the year one with the new emperor didn't happen Uh, as far as i can tell (laughs) the planes aren't falling from the skies and dogs aren't marrying cats so i I guess that was that went okay well that's really good or we wouldn't be doing this program right (laughs) yeah Speaking of which, I wanted to talk to you about Abe and, and President Trump. And there's so many things I want to catch up. We need five hours today. I want to talk to you, James. But we don't have five hours. I only have a couple seconds as we're going into our break. We'll continue right after um, these short commercials. Please stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and I'm joined with James Corbett. Oh, don't you tell me. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver Trading, 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. James, there's a lot of info in the news uh, for three days, for a week. There were really big headlines of trade wars totally gone today. Uh, we saw the stock markets correct down, you know, 700 points one day, uh, came back and so forth. So there's tweeting, you know, they're, well, tweeting is appropriate, but uh, the stock market is going up and down and so forth. Um, is China going to use U.S. Treasuries uh, to, um, we know their holdings are at a two-year low. Are they going to continue to use holdings uh, against this trade deal or is there something more to it or where, where do you see the this trade uh, war going between the United States and China? Yeah, well, those are good questions. And I think you're right to point out that the uh, the headlines about the calamitous trade war uh, did disappear rather quickly because, as you point out, the stock market corrected. It went back up. So 
So we're fine, right? I mean, because we have been trained, and this is a point that I've written about over and over in the forecaster for years now. We've been trained to believe that the stock market is is really a bellwether of the economy. And perhaps there was a time in which that was true, in which there was some sort of manufacturing growth or something was really reflected in those numbers. But at this point, those numbers are nothing but central bank manipulation, and they mean nothing. But we're still trained to believe that, oh, the stock market's going up, so I guess everything's okay, right? Uh, wrong. And we can tell that from various uh, statistics, even from mainstream sources. Uh, the IMF's direction of trade statistics, for example, uh, shows quite clearly that uh, U.S. exports to the world are at their weakest since 2009. U.S. exports to advanced economies are also at their weakest since 2009. And U.S. exports to the European Union are just about at their lowest since 2009, which... Why 2009? Oh, of course, that was the Lehman crisis, the start of the greatest recession or whatever the history books are going to term that. Um, basically, financial crisis territory. Uh, as uh, the headline on Zero Hedge is saying right now, global trade collapsing to depression levels. Yeah, that's about right. Global trade really is seizing up right now, and there is some serious ramifications that are not being priced in, or at least not reflected in those stock market numbers. So uh, there's, I, I think it is interesting how quickly those those headlines did drop off. Um, as to where this is heading, again, I don't have a crystal ball, and it is a question of what leverage China really has in these negotiations, because, uh, of course, Trump is slapping 25% tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods, so China turns around and sanctions $60 billion worth of U.S. goods. Well, it's not really... Uh, it's not really doesn't balance out because China really can't do that because they don't import as much American goods as America imports Chinese goods. So they don't have that kind of leverage in the system in this situation. One of the leverages they do have is because of the trade deficit and the accumulation of dollars that uh, the China has uh, accumulated over the years and the uh, the treasuries that they are holding. They do have that leverage. And this is sometimes described as the Chinese nuclear option that they're going to dump them all or dump all the treasuries all at once and cause the dollar to crash or something. I've written about this before. I don't think that's even possible, let alone likely. I don't think they're I, I don't think China would be motivated to do that because they are still trying to finance and and uh, leverage out their their belt and road initiatives. And once that is in place, perhaps then they could afford to have something like the dollar collapse and some sort of big economic calamity because they'd be sitting pretty. But I don't think that's any time in the near future, and I don't think they're looking to do that right now. I think China, as usual, is probably playing the long game here and trying to basically maintain things uh, to the extent that they can for as long as they can. And they'll, you know, as usual, as part of their trade negotiations, they'll... They'll say things and they'll promise things and then they'll renege on them later. And that's how these negotiations generally work. So it is an interesting process. Unfortunately, it's lose-lose for humanity because, of course, tariff is just a fancy way of saying tax on Americans for Chinese goods. So it's, uh, it's not like anyone really wins from this scenario. Um, it's just that trade is shutting down and that's going to affect everyone. I guess the real question is, what are people doing to offset this or correct this. And of course, we have seen precious metals spiking a bit recently as a result of some of this uh, uncertainty, as as we would expect. Of course, precious metals always seen as a, uh, a store of safety. We've also seen Bitcoin 
coming back. Uh, uh, I think it's, I, I actually haven't checked in the last couple of days, but it's uh, been, I think, testing $6,000 or something at this point again, which again, people will say, well, it was $20,000 a year and a half ago. It's all time high was $20,000. It never ceases to amaze me that people are uh, <laughs> discount cryptocurrency because Bitcoin went from $20,000 to 3500 or whatever. When a few years ago, if you said Bitcoin would ever get to $3,500, people would have laughed you out of the room. It'll never get there. So it's all a Actually, question of perspective. And it's always fascinating to me to see why pe- and how people discount things and, and how they uh, factor things like that in. But the point act, is, act, some so people... Inter- let, let me just interject. Bitcoin is actually 8,300. 8,300. Well, there you go. You see, it is yeah. starting. It's uh, every spring around April, it starts generally ramping up. And so it looks like this year it is doing the exact same thing. Uh, the only question is whether this will continue as a rally and test those previous highs or not. Um, whether it does or not, I think is ultimately inconsequential. It is still a relatively new market. It's only 11 years at this point since uh, Bitcoin came into existence. But. Uh, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that when you look at the overall trend line on a logarithmic scale, not on a on a, a, a arithmetical scale, but on a, a logarithmic scale, you can see that it is a generally smooth trend, except for these gigantic spikes and valleys that come, this huge rally and then huge crash that comes. But it ultimately returns to the trend line, and I think that's the point to keep in mind. Um, but anyway, regardless of that uh, as a sort of measured in U.S. dollars type of investment. I I think the bigger question is, is it a store of value and are people starting to flock to it as that? And some people are suggesting that this current rally might be a sign that, for example, China might be shoring up and uh, and investing a little bit in cryptocurrency as a way of uh, hedging some of its bets. I I don't think that's really likely in this case. A, as I say, it is a cyclical thing. It happens every spring. And B, I just don't think the cryptocurrency markets are large enough uh, at this point for central banks to really be significantly hedging in there. But uh, but it is something to keep our eye on for the future, I would say. When you talk about regulation, I heard a conversation on one of the ma- on the media programs, financial programs, and someone was trying to blurt out that what 95 percent of the crypto uh, market is not regulated, meaning. Nobody even has a clue in those exchanges on who has what, where it goes, where it's at, or anything. And they wouldn't let this person finish the statement. And I didn't realize it was that wild of a market. I mean, to where, I mean, people put money in and. Well, it has been a wild market. It has been a wild market. I think that is changing, and they are trying to clamp down on it in various ways. And you certainly see this in the various exchanges that uh, a a few years ago, even, uh, most exchanges didn't require much identification, and you could be exchanging different cryptocurrencies quite freely. Um, It was generally harder to get cryptocurrency into cash, so that generally required some kind of identification. But there was lots of ways to to take coins and shift them here and move them there. It, it, that is getting harder to do as more exchanges do enact their various know your customer type legislation. And more wallets are being compliant and what have you, but there are still ways around that. And uh, certainly there are exchanges where people can, and, and there are hundreds of different varieties of cryptocurrency now, and you can exchange between them in various ways. So yes, it, it is extremely for the average person. It would be pretty much impossible. I, still think that the NSA that has the trunk lines of the internet can probably do some pretty 
sophisticated uh, uh, blockchain monitoring to figure out what is what and where it's going and who's doing what. But still, that is that is top level deep state stuff. And, uh, you know, generally, the average person probably isn't in, in imminent trouble from that. But but it's certainly something to think about. And the IRS and, of course, every other country's tax agency is looking at that as one big giant slice of pie that they can dig into once they get the tools to do so. Well, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia um, had two of its oil tankers were sabotaged off the coast of the the UAE. Uh, they had drone attacks uh, on an oil pumping station. And so my question is, are these false flags to drag us into a war with Iran? And is the United States... Uh, do you think the United States is willing to go to war with Iran? Do you think that's going to happen? Well, the second question first, um, I would say yes, but uh, that's a qualified yes. I mean, again, the United States is is not an entity, but there are certainly elements right. in the Trump administration who are very keen to involve uh, the U.S. in some – embroil the U.S. in some sort of war in the Middle East again. So we have to be concerned about that. And on that note, then, it is extremely important that people be very – aware of the possibility of some sort of maritime false flag in the Persian Gulf, specifically in the Strait of Hormuz, which is absolutely crucial to shipping in the region. And uh, it's, it is a choke point, so it is definitely a place where certain things can be arranged and can happen. And we have to be aware that there is a very, very rich history of naval false flags being used to start various military operations going back hundreds of years. And I actually have written about this in an article that I wrote for The Forecaster a couple of years ago, U.S. Naval False Flags, A Brief History, where I just go through um, some of the examples throughout history that we've seen of incidents at sea being used to start wars from the Spanish-American War uh, to, of course, the, the Gulf of Tonkin in Vietnam and uh, the Lusitania with World War One and all of these other examples, including actually the interesting open letter that many people probably didn't see that Senator Gary Hart wrote, unsolicited advice to the government of Iran, uh, where he wrote, presuming that you are not actually ignorant enough to desire war with the United States, you might be well advised to read the history of the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898 and the history of the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964. Having done so, you will surely recognize that Americans are reluctant to go to war unless attacked. Until Pearl Harbor, we were even reluctant to get involved in World War II. For historians of American wars, the question is whether we provoke provocations. Whether we provoke provocations, that's a, an incredible thing for a senator to be openly musing about. He is essentially saying, watch out, we can stage certain incidents and uh, you might be on the, the, the receiving end of whatever results from that. Uh, that's a pretty remarkable thing that I think a lot of people didn't pick up on at the time. So uh, they can go back and read my article for the link to that. But it is, um, it is absolutely something we have to keep in mind. I, 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 I haven't seen enough information about these incidents uh, in the Persian Gulf in the last couple of weeks to, or in the last few days really, to, to be able to say one way or another whether this is or isn't a false flag um, or what really happened at all. We know there was some sort of sabotage attack uh, off of Fujairah, which is part of the UAE uh, on May 12th that involved uh, uh, four ships, two Saudi ships, uh, an Emirati ship and an, a Norwegian ship, which had holes blown in their hole near the waterline, but very few details. Of course, it was immediately blamed on Iran by America. And then on 
May 14th, there was uh, two oil pumping stations that were attacked or damaged um, that Saudi Arabia is blaming on Yemen, or the Houthi rebels um, that they are slaughtering uh, in Yemen. So uh, there are a couple of incidents, but there's not a lot to go on. Of of course, the finger has been blamed, uh, pointed at Iran, but again, there's not even any evidence that they're pointing to. They're just saying it's Iran and expecting everyone to go along with it. Hopefully, we have educated the public enough that they're not just going to believe it just because, oh, well, the U.S. government is saying it's Iran. Well, then, good enough for me. Let's let's sign up and go to war. Uh, hopefully, people will have a bit of skepticism about these events and not be in such a rush to get involved in a war. I mean, post-Iraq, post-Libya, post-Syria, post all of these debacles that have resulted over the last couple of decades from jumping into wars, I'm thinking maybe it's time to just put a little bit of a break on these operations. I would expect even the normiest of mainstream normies to be a little bit reluctant to jump into another war in the Middle East at this point. But unfortunately, uh, logic does not always prevail in these situations. Well, I guess they are removing um, uh, folks out of the embassy in Iraq. And um, the U.S. Embassy is being cleared. I guess they're leaving a few people back, but uh, most of them are are leaving or uh, being brought back. And, uh, you know, I I think, yeah, personally, it's my own view and it doesn't, you know, it's maybe I shouldn't say it. I've said it on the program, but I do believe we're going to be in a war somewhere before 2020. I, I just believe we are. I'm afraid you might be correct about that. And one worrying sign of that, um, on May 9th, uh, John Bolton, who, of course, is the neocon warmonger par excellence in the Trump administration, uh, just updated uh, plans for sending 120,000 troops to the Middle East if Iran attacks. So they're definitely prepping for something at this point. Yes. And... uh I just, uh, based on what's happening in D.C. and those behind it, yeah, uh, there's no way we're, I just believe we are. And so, and it's a frightening thing because it, I remember Bob, Bob Chapman saying, ah, no, because I, uh, Iran, they, they know they're going to get <laughs> blown to smithereens. So, you know, they, they, they don't want a war, and uh, which made sense at that point in time. But now you've got all these other countries positioning themselves. You know, China's become more powerful since then. You have Russia. You see these other relationships that I think makes Iran a whole lot larger than what it used to be. Yep. As yep. far and, as strength. and there are people who have been saying, or, or, or who do say, well, you've been talking about this for a, for a decade now, or a decade and a half, and it hasn't happened yet. The war in Iran, war in Iran. Well, yeah, you keep talking about it until it happens. And we certainly know that this is a desire of the neocon set. We've known that for years. So here we go. Oh, my my gosh. We're out of time. That went by quick. Thank you so much. I I was looking so forward to spending this time with you, James. And we'll talk again in two weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Financial Survival. Thank you for joining us. So be safe. Good night. And God bless. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com 
support.